episode of Clubroid and Clubroid Radio. Uh, Zach here, and as always, Matt, how you doing, man? Doing good, man. Um, kind of catching up from some of the road travel this past week. Uh, did a walk around of Tinley on Friday, and you know, just trying to play a little bit of catch up now within the home collection and uh, situating up for another week on the road. Yeah, we, we've both been on the road quite a bit. I was home last week, uh, but the week before uh, was our spring break, and I, with a handful of students, headed down to help some some of my grad students working on a crayfish project in South Carolina. And I thought, well, if we're going to South Carolina, we might as well drive to Florida. So we kept on going south and uh, had it in my head that we could maybe do a project with Floridana, the Florida king snake, if we could find enough of them. So we went to the cane fields, uh, put our time in, and found one alive, one dead on the road. And in the meantime of looking for the Florida kings, found so many Nerodia. And we all know I love my Nerodia. And that got me to the thinking that it would be so much better if we just made the focal species of this potential master's thesis Florida water snakes instead of Florida king snakes because we were road cruising and averaged anywhere from like as few as five to as many as 10, 15 a night and really wasn't putting in the effort. So it's a great week in Florida. Also got my life for crocodile, kind of cheated. I went to Flamingo in the Everglades where everybody gets their life for American crocodile, but uh, still well worth it. It was good to get out in the field. Good to see some snakes. And as everybody's about to learn, today's episode has a lot of herping in it. So tis the season to start that. And we're going to keep that ball rolling. But I have a couple announcements. I noticed that our previous guest may have sent you a box, Matt. It, it, oh, yeah. <laughs> did that happen? It did. So Mike was kind of teasing me because of uh, not sending him a box. So we ended up doing a final exchange here. So Mike got some interesting colubrids himself, some of the things he's been waiting on, including um, a pair of Cape files. And I ended up picking up seven Grabowski that were captive born in Mike's collection. So, and I don't know if they're Grabowski. I don't know what they are, but <laughs> they sure like to bluff. Like to bluff. Um, so it'll be <laughs> interesting to see these animals develop and change, you know, in the time, because that was part of, you know, my real justification or reasoning behind having them was pictures really don't do justice of the animals. And I also wanted to see how the animals interacted, see how they developed and feeding behavior, breeding behavior, because I think it makes a much larger statement related to the animals themselves. Nice. So no matter what they are, how many different forms of tenuria does this make in your that you've had experience keeping? Um, I have two. About five. five. Damn. Five. Yeah. So, and that's not even including the two different localities of Ritalia, mm-hmm. too, as well. Excellent. Excellent. So, so everything's out of brumation for me. I'm assuming most things, if not all, are out for you. Is that correct? That is correct, and have seen multiple locks already for the year. Nice. So I just started putting my stuff together. Um, the hogs are going nuts, as they should be. 
some Pitchophis and some Pantherophis activity. But as everybody knows, I have all these king snakes, and I brought the kings out, and I put them all together. It's all getchulous stuff. And then they just keep, like, staring at each other. And then I'm sitting there thinking, like, you're going to eat each other? You're going to mate with each other? What the hell's going on? So <laughs> waiting for those sheds to hit. The only kings that have definitely locked, and they've locked multiple times, are the Outer Banks kings, formerly known as Stickiceps. Um, should be getting those. Uh, but... I have yet to see any kind of activity other than cuddling with the 20 plus whatever, however many I have. I actually don't know <laughs> Florida Kings, but I've been talking to some people, Scott McFarlane, Jen Archer, and they just keep telling me, be patient. It's not immediate. So it goes to show that you can have like all the experience in the world with these like weird exotic things like my South American dips added. And then I put these beginner snakes together and they're driving me crazy because there's like nothing going on. Uh, but no, we shall soon soon see what goes on that front. Um, and then I have my first clutch of eggs. A little bit unexpected. I uh, bred all the false water cobras, as I said before. And normally, the way that works is I put them all together the first week of the year. And then I usually get eggs last week of March, first week of April. I think they ovulate well after copulation normally. And a first-time mom surprised all of us. I got back from spring break. I think it was the month. It was the Sunday that I got back. I was, and uh, I got a panicked message from the students at school saying, what the hell do we do with these? And there was a picture of eggs in an egg box. And I was like, all right, we're off to the races early this year. So 24 fertile false water cobra eggs from a first time mom, no slugs. You can't ask for anything better than that. So good to go on that front. I, have you had eggs yet or just breeding? Uh, no eggs yet. Um, about to have two clutches of cocci eggs laid as both females are in their nest box. Um, and poultry are still breeding. But in terms of eggs for the season, no, it's been pretty quiet so far. But, Zach, we're only in the middle stages. Of I know that. Come on. I'm a, I'm a little bit like, <laughs> holy shit, we already have eggs? <laughs> So I'm not used to this. I'm used to like May, June, of course, being the insane time. So anywho, all righty. Well, um, I'm ready to get going. You ready to go? Yeah, let's jump into this. Okay. So our guest today is Daniel Lawrence. Uh, Daniel is from California. And his name was given to us because we always ask people, to reach out and tell us what you want uh, and in episodes. And one of uh, our listeners basically said, hey, I know this guy. He's all about locality, California king snakes. You're showing a lot of the East Coasters love. What about us out here on the West Coast? And you ask and you shall receive. That's the way our podcast rolls. So uh, reached out to Dan. Dan and I were the you may recall I mentioned before our last episode that we had some technical difficulties. That was Dan and I trying to get this thing to roll. Turns out we need Matt. Matt is the magic bullet to make this whole thing work uh, technologically because I know, at least for me, I'm an analog dinosaur. I'd much rather be out in the forest flipping rocks and logs than sitting in front of a computer screen. But we got it working, and so we have Dan with us today. How you doing, man? Doing good, doing good. Glad to be here. And yeah, some of some of those technical difficulties were my my dinosaur computer system as well, which I I needed to upgrade it anyway. So it was perfect timing. So 
yeah, glad to glad to be here and finally uh, be able to, you know, make the connection here. <laughs> yes. So, with that being said, um, today's episode is going to be a little bit unique. Uh, normally, we're very husbandry focused, but the main thrust behind this is Dan keeps California king snakes and rosy boas, but we're going to focus mainly on the Cali kings today. And Dan is a locality Cali king guy. So today's episode is going to be about herping and keeping and how those two disciplines kind of marry together to make for what I might argue the ultimate herpetocultural experience. So with that being said, uh, I'm going to steal Matt's question because I'm just kind of rolling. Uh, but what was your start with reptiles and how long have you been doing this whole herpetoculture thing, Dan? Okay, let's see. So, um, well, I grew up in uh, Torrance, uh, which is just south of Los Angeles, if anyone's sort of familiar with that. But you can kind of picture just uh, between Los Angeles and Long Beach if for people that aren't from the, the state there. Um, but uh Basically, um, I grew up basically in the middle of like a suburban uh, urban area. So there wasn't a whole lot uh, as far as herping, you know, that to per se right outside my doorstep. But I just just by chance, um, there was a little bit of uh, urban uh, wildlife and things that do live in Torrance right across the street from my house uh, where I grew up. There was uh, fence lizards and gopher snakes. Nice. And that was... Uh, one of my first sort of introductions into into just seeing reptiles in the wild and and as a kid just thinking wow that's that's something that's that's kind of kind of cool kind of interesting and I was always that kid that was like into uh, dinosaurs and that type of a thing and that kind of fit in there um, but uh, also uh, I'll mention my my grandparents were a big part in that too my uh, my grandmother actually uh, just passed away a couple weeks ago. Um, and, uh, they had, uh, they were retired for many, many years and they had a, a home up in Tehachapi, California, and uh, they had another home out in Palm Desert. And I used to play in the hills and in the, the areas around their, both of their homes as a kid. And that was where I found other species of reptiles and, you know, things like Gilbert skanks. And, um, you'd see occasionally would see other snakes. You'd see your first rattlesnake and, uh, so it was kind of just a, a, as a kid uh, growing up sort of in, in a Southern California is not a bad place to grow up uh, to be potentially exposed to uh, herpetology and that kind of a thing. And I had uh, grandparents and parents that uh, took me out places. We went to the Eastern Sierra, we went out to the desert and, and I just, I had parents that were sort of uh, into that thing into just you know knowing a little bit more about what you're what you're looking at instead of just driving right by it um so that was kind of where it started um and basically i did as a kid as a young kid i i developed a um basically a, a, a fascination with reptiles so i would i would deliberately go down to the park across the street from my house and i would look for gopher snakes and i'd rarely ever find one because it you know 10 years old you you know, you just didn't quite know what you were what you were doing. You know, you'd be out on an 80 degree day or something like that, or even in the middle of you know July or whatever. But um, occasionally, you'd find a gopher snake, and I could always catch alligator lizards. And you know, we had alligator lizards, of course, as well. Forgot about those, but uh, you know, fence lizards and 
And like I said, as you go on trips with your parents around places, every once in a while, you'd find something really cool. You'd find a horn toad or something, and that would just that would just spark your interest even more. And then I remember at a certain age, um, you'd uh, open up that field guide. You got that first uh, Autobahn. We called it like the Bible because it looked like a little a little Bible, you know. And and you'd see the the rosy boa, and you'd see the California king snake, and you'd see that they had a picture of a striped one in there. And you just and that would just and as a kid, you just really wondered about that. And you know, so it's just something that uh progressed you know through through high school um we had a couple friends that worked at a couple reptile shops there was some uh, really prominent reptile shops in the area that some people might remember there was hermosa pet when i was a kid that was down at hermosa beach and that's uh i i, I don't know if that's the shop that lloyd lemke ran or but there there was all those people were around in the area um in that that time when i was much younger but but later on when i was as we as i was growing up there was other reptile shops over in the vita and and other friends of mine that that would uh work at some of these shops and occasionally you'd hear um a mentioning about you know they somebody caught a king snake over here and uh, that was you know and that was kind of right about the time that the uh the field herp forum was starting up in like 2005 and I think we were, you had the, the kind of the King Snake Forum was kind of before that. And we were, we were, you know, in like our early 20s, you know, just getting out of high school. And uh, we started seeing these other, other uh, guys, you know, Brian Hubbs was one of those guys and uh, Ross Padilla, if uh, people are familiar with, with him and he's online. And, um, but uh, they were, you know, putting up pictures of finding these really cool king snakes occasionally in in Los Angeles in what appeared to be this basically the neighborhood we grew up in. It was just the same, you know. And, and we just as soon as we saw that, so it was me and a, a good friend of mine, and uh, we just, you know, um, we had to be part of that. So that's kind of how I got into at least the, at least the urban thing. And and uh, around the same time, we got into rosy boas and. Uh, um, that's a that's a whole nother story altogether, but um, that's pretty much it. And it's been a um, something I've been, you know, been a, a lifelong thing till now. I'm 37 years old, so it's been uh, I think I've got almost, you know, almost 20 years of of seeking reptiles and looking learning about them in the wild, you know. And it, it takes definitely takes a it's a long learning process. And we all learn at different different rates and everything, but uh, yeah, it's basically basically how I've gotten into it till, till now. And we, uh, the, the Los Angeles thing is something that I found that very few people were specializing in. And it just happened to be that I lived in the perfect place. <laughs> so we decided to specialize in that and it's, that's worked out good. So Daniel, um, you know, you kind of mentioned a couple of things that, you know, different species that you saw, not only in the field from your grandparents and family members, locations, pet stores, in terms of, pet availability. So what kind of drove you into California king snakes as more or less your specialty in your personal collection? Well, so for for me, um, I I became really, really interested in in um, the diversity that that I have right here in like the state of California, mainly Southern California and and the, uh, the diversity that we have in, um, especially like the Southwestern United States where we have, you know, um, you know, basically it's 
to, to mo what most would interpret, we have a lot of exotic species that, that are reaching their northern limits of their range in uh, in that part of the United States. The Cal King obviously ranges quite a bit further north, but you have like the rosy boa and, and a few other species, the lyre snake. So you basically have a few, a few species that are really, really interesting. Not to say that other snakes aren't that interesting, but you have like ringneck snakes and garter snakes and um, even gopher snakes, which are, which are very interesting amongst themselves. But as we were, you know, as basically as, as we're learning about snakes and, and figuring out where, where we want to go and look for them, we're also thinking about what are the, what are the top snakes on our list? And so if you're in Southern California, it's basically a, a Zonata for most people. Uh, some people it's a Zonata, some people it's a rosy boa of some kind, of some locality, or it's a cow king of some, uh, you know, nice looking cow king, maybe a morph or something like that. Those are probably the top three things. Some people are into, you know, some people are out there to find speckled rattlesnakes and other things. But really when you're looking at the snakes that people would want to uh, collect that make a good pet or, you know, but that's, that's just what we gravitated towards was, um, was rosy boas, zonata, and then obviously cow kings. And then when you look at the fact that um, these morphs exist, which you look at it, just a normal banded cow king, um, you know, I mean, really, you know, there's, there's, uh, a fairly run-of-the-mill cow king that you can find in in the middle of LA that could could look just like a cow king that you could catch up near Sacramento. For all in, intensive purposes, there are there are still differences amongst them. But don't let me discount the banded ones because they're extremely unique. But then you got these morphs, which just make it even more interesting. So that's that's one of the reasons that I decided to gravitate towards this because um, within especially like the Newport Long Beach morph. Um, I saw early on a, a, a really um, a really vast uh, range of pattern potentialities and and different types of um, uh, pattern marking characteristics and 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 different. There's just a, just a wide um, potential there in what you could produce with the snake or what you could just find in the wild. Um, you know, in my opinion, Los Angeles possibly is. It, could, could easily be one of the most uh, diverse morph-wise areas for uh, cow kings or even getula um, as a whole. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons I gravitated towards that because there is really a, there really is a lot there. And then it's also, it's something that it's, it's also very hard to do. You go to other counties um, like San Diego, um, even Orange County, but certainly San Diego, Riverside County, um, it's a little easier to locate not only kings and numbers, but to locate morphs. Not to say that it's anything's easy, but uh, it's it's easier. It's not. It's something that that's, that more people have had success in doing. Um, this LA thing, uh, where we where we're where I grew up, where I'm from, in, within the LA basin, it's uh, you know it's more of a challenging thing. It's more of a niche thing. You really got to think outside the box. Um, that then you don't find the numbers. So it was. It's something that that uh, we thought we could gravitate towards. And I say, I keep, you're going to hear me say we um, throughout the podcast. And it's, it's a, it's a really good friend of mine who, who for all intents and purposes, he'd like to just remain anonymous because that's just been his thing for years. But the, uh, those that are listening, the, they know exactly who I'm talking about. So I'll just mention that, mention that once, but uh, I have a really good friend that I do a lot of my board lines and stuff with. Um, but yeah, basically that's, that's one reason that I, um, 
gravitated towards Cal Kings, specifically Los Angeles County, urban LA basin Cal Kings, because it's something that not everybody does, not everybody can do, or is, let's just say, willing to do, because just because it's certain, there's just a, a wide array of challenges that come with uh, trying to find snakes in small uh, pockets, small to medium-sized pockets in the, in the city. Um, so that's basically what gravitated me towards, towards Cal Kings. Cool. Right on. Yeah. I was always a big fan of black and white Cal Kings. Um, I remember having a bunch of them in graduate school too, and, and trying to get, you know, multiple horseshoes on those animals. I know Mm -hmm. that's always been one of those things that was desirable, um, especially the double horseshoes on those animals. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually I I've uh, kept the Jawbone uh, cow kings, which are the local Kern County uh, locality king. But um, there's 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 a, a wide array of uh, you know really nice black and white you know locality and not and, and non locality stock out there um, that I've always I've I've been interested in that for a long time too. So Daniel, you mentioned um, one other thing. You you mentioned a passion for rosy boas. Yes. So what other localities of rosy boas do you have within your collection, obviously, within, you know, talking about other species of snakes that you keep? So, um, okay, so rosy boa wise, um, I basically the first locality I'll start with is is the locality that's basically kind of my backyard, uh, Soledad Canyon. Um, So I I keep... um, basically a nice, um, I I keep a a couple breeding pairs of Soledad Canyons at any given time. And that's a, it's a basically a, it's basically a San Gabriel, uh, rosy bow. If people are familiar with that, that it's a, it's a basically a a phenotype of rosy boa that you find pretty much in within the San Gabriel mountains. And as you start to get to the Northern end, kind of where I'm at, the, uh, Soledad Canyon has kind of a very, uh, um, specific kind of look. It's a, it's a narrower, uh, more zigzaggy stripe, a lot of speckling, uh, but they could also look, look more, uh, more normal as well. But I, I keep the Soledad canyons. Um, I also keep, um, uh, Alpine, which is a San Diego locality. Um, and I, I have some really dark, uh, gray and blue stock that we, uh, collected years ago. Um, to start that project. Um, I have my Lake Havasu city, um, rosy boas, which are, that's a locality that, um, I basically sort of discovered the locality in, in, uh, 2012. It's the mountain range right behind, uh, Havasu city there basically. So it's an Arizona locality kind of look a lot like uh Surbat or, uh, um, uh, mountain boa similar similar in look to that so i that's kind of a another specialty locale if you will there's there's other other people that keep them now um but uh, that's that's one of my kind of signature localities i i uh, i'm working on getting some el rosarios into production um baja stuff i'm still kind of working on right now i've i've kind of had stuff before uh, and kind of gotten rid of it um but i'm working on getting some baja stuff into production um I have uh, some really nice hypo long Canyon stock that uh, people really seem to be really stoked on. It's, it's a really, some of the babies can be like a really bright orange, almost like a, um, 
a uh, albino uh, whitewater, but just not with the pink eye. And they're they're not an, a, an albino. They're just a, a really nice hypo. And um, I'm working on getting some wild caught um, genetics bred back into that. Um, and what else am I got? I have a, a pair of corn springs, of course, um, which, uh, you know, that's one of the few, uh, low desert localities I've been able to, uh, find in the wild. You know, I haven't had too, I haven't had as much success out there as other, as other people, but, uh, that's, that's more the, that's the kind of the majority of my Rosie Boa, uh, collection right now. Um, I tend to try to get multiple pairs. So I kind of have a large collection going without too many locales right now, but I'm working on, I'm working on getting more stuff in the, in the future. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to work on getting some El Rosario, some Colony, uh, Rosie Boas into production. Um, I'm going to try breeding some, uh, Ajo Mexican Rosie Boas in the future. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, doing breeder loans with people and, but, um, yeah, I should be breeding, um, quite a, quite a few of them, uh, a little bit later this year here. A lot of, a lot of my rosy boas breed in, uh, May and June. Um, a lot of my, my animals that we have here from Southern California. So yeah, it's a, it's a, not a huge, extremely diverse locality wise, but I, 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 I'm really enriching it by having like multiple females and, and holding on to, uh, to different specimens that have a little bit different phenotypes and stuff going on. And so you can hold on to these different animals and try different breeding combinations. And there's, you know, there's not quite as much variability with say a rosy boa as like a, like a king snake. Um, but there is variability there. And uh, those um, we're starting to learn that those things can be bred, can be bred out by, um, by isolating certain genes and, you know, even doing like uh, breed backs, which we used to, we used to kind of think was a, we sort of thought it was a no, no, at least for, for, for myself, but, but we've tried that recently with some San Gabriel boas and gotten some really, really just bright orange. And that was, that was how we, we got it for the, the first time was breeding a, a baby back, you know, to its, to its mom. So. Cool. So yeah, I think what we're going to do, now is we're going to basically go through the process we'll discuss the herping and then we'll we'll head on to the keeping and, and how you do that and breed and all that kind of good stuff so first thing before we get into the actual field collection and the herping is obviously we don't want to just be going out and collecting as many snakes as we see there's an ethics part to this whole um, equation that all what, what's the word i'm looking for legitimate field herpers have. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you have to do as far as the legality side of things is concerned before you go out and, and you know, find an animal and, and bring it in to human care to begin a locality line, at least for California, obviously every state's different, but just talk a little bit about that process. So, you know, so, so yeah. So like if you're a California resident and let's say you wanted to get into uh, keeping one of the um, there's really, I think it's only like four snakes that are actually, they, they allow you to, to breed. Um, it's the, it's the glossy, the, it's a, it's a rosy boa glossy snake. I believe it's the gopher and the, and the king snake. I'm not quite sure on that fourth one, but let's say you wanted to breed to, to go out and collect 
a pair of king snakes and and uh, breed them. So you basically would have to get a freshwater uh, fishing license to collect the snakes in the first place. The bag limit on the common king snake, the California king snake, is four. So with a freshwater fishing license, you could go out and collect uh, four of them, and that would be it's a limit of four in possession. So basically, you can interpret that different ways, but basically. If they come to your home, if they find you, if they stop you out in the field, you can have no more than four on you yeah. uh, that are that are wild caught. Now, of course, at your home, you can have, uh, you know, animals that you purchased, you know, that you purchased from the pet trade. So to breed them, you have to contact Fish and Wildlife and apply for a uh, California propagation permit. Um, and which at that point, you'll basically fill out some information on like the background of your animals and uh, kind of what, what you intend to do and, and a little bit about your what you're keeping there at your house collection wise. And uh, you send in a fee. And basically, if all the information checks out, they will send you a um, captive propagation uh, permit. Um, it's not a uh, too difficult of a process. So that's those are basically the the legal um parameters with with uh if you were someone that was interested like a, a resident of california in, in breeding say cow kings or something one of one of those four species all right so we've we've done that we're legal all's well we respect the process now we're herping so talk a little bit about what it is to go find a cali king so like i know a lot of people before they go herping they have this assumption that you go out on a bright sunny hot summer day because that's when snakes are active and you're going to go flip rocks and the snakes are just going to be slithering through the grass and everything's going to be hunky-dory and if you go out you're guaranteed to find them and then you're going to basically go home happy and i know that there's a lot of people that think oh that's herping and as a herper i can attest to the fact that that's about as pie in the sky as you can possibly get so i've done no herping in california i know nothing about it uh you're, you're the expert. So just kind of divulge what this actually entails for someone who might be entertaining the idea of maybe becoming a locality person. And and to, to start with that, I mean, honestly, that's, we, we've all been through yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the, uh, that's where it starts for a lot of people. You, you see, unfortunately, the, I, I say unfortunately, because we have that competitive aspect with it nowadays, but People have the, have the ability to go online and find a lot of that information. If they're if they're sharp enough type of person that that can learn quickly, they can find a lot of that information online and not have that trial and error process of going out on the on the wrong day. Or, but that's where a lot of it it starts is is learning learning the hard way and and kind of that trial and error method. But um, yeah, as you as you start to 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 actually learn what the proper time of year is, what a good day is, how to actually hunt these reptiles. So what is uh, what does hunting for king snakes look like? Um, it depends on what county in, in California that you're that you're hunting in, but basically um, it all in, in, there's there's a similar obviously a similar hunting method that's that's used, which is uh, uh, flipping and I say flipping because we don't flip it over out of place, but we we look underneath artificial cover. Mm -hmm which is boards and uh, whatever else, tins, uh, rocks, concrete, asphalt, anything that's flat and covering the ground. Um, 
and that's all done basically in in the California springtime, which I think comes a little earlier than other other parts of the country. But um, basically, as you learn more and you get to that that level where you fully understand every every time of year that could possibly go out and, and find a king. I mean, um, you're, you could on, on certain years when we get fall rains, you can start as early as um, October or possibly even late September. And there can be a, a little period where it's we get some fall rains and you could have a couple weeks of uh, activity where you're finding them under boards and things like that. Um, you can find them certain years. We have just such a wide range of weather here in, mm -hmm. in Southern California, especially along the coast. Um, it just really varies certain years. So some years you, you're literally, you, you're out like literally in December around Christmas time. And uh, it's not like prime conditions, but you're able to like find a king or two under, under whatever, a board, a rock, something, something like that. Um, but obviously, um, you know, it, it, you get into the prime time of year, which is anywhere from usually uh, kind of like beginning mid-March to kind of like the middle end of April, depending on the year. Um, but, uh, you know, basically this year, right right around now is basically prime time. I actually, uh, I'll have to I'll have to admit, I, uh, I found a couple of Cal Kings yesterday. Um, I was down, I, I, I shouldn't even tell this story, but I was, I was down for my... Uh, grandmother's uh funeral yesterday and we had the the service at a there's a cemetery over in like the san pedro area mm -hmm. and um a, a buddy of mine was down down in that in that in that area we, we went over to palace verdes and in between the service and the uh the get together after we had i had about a, an hour and a half to kill so I, I couldn't resist. I, I, I did throw on my hiking boots, but I was out there in a pair of uh, slacks and a, <laughs> and a real nice shirt and tie. And uh, my buddy had already found, he'd already found the first one. And, and then we walked over to another spot and I got to flip the other one. But uh, there was a couple, there was a couple Kings up yesterday around the middle of the day. And it's, it's extremely dry out there. We haven't had any rain uh, since I think it was around Christmas time kind of like the early January, any significant rain. And it, it was, it was a significant rain that we got, but it's been several months since we've, we've had any type of, uh, any type of significant moisture. So it's extremely dry out there, but it's, it's basically just, it's the right time of year. So yeah. they, so even though it's very dry out there, these snakes are still going to be coming up in the, in the mornings and afternoons and crawling around. And if they, if they, if they either come up under a board or they find their way to a rock or a board, they're going to hang out for a little bit. And if you come along at the right time and turn said rock, you can get lucky, you know? Um, but that's, that's basically what it, what it really, what it looks like. You're um, in the springtime in Southern California, you're, you're looking for really good grassy. If you're looking for cow kings, you're looking for really good grassy environments, um, which is all, it's all invasive um, European grasses that, that have been growing here for hundreds of years that we have in, in most of those kind of what I call disturbed habitats. And sometimes those disturbed habitats are the best uh, areas to put boards in because, you know, really the natural habitat for California is, is kind of like a sage, uh, sage scrub or a chaparral or a native uh, kind of a bunch grass is what we used to, it was what we had before, um, you know, this, this part of the world was the, you know, basically the, uh, 
European expansion. And that's what brought over these invasive grasses that we have that are they're much more like the African and Mediterranean grasses. And you have uh, mustard, which is something that people will know about and they look for, which is, uh, it's all invasive types of grasses and things like that. But that those are the areas that hold the moisture the best. And those are the areas where you want to try to put boards down and put them over rodent holes or find other things that are already there, concrete and whatever, and um, just know of things that you can go turn. And then as you're basically, as you're hiking around, you're looking for anything that could be out on the, on the crawl. Um, you know, and initially when we first, you know, when I first started doing this, we, you know, when we were younger, um, you, a lot of the animals were, we'd, we'd, we would just hike around and we would find, you know, what we would, what you would see out on the crawl. Um, and that, believe it or not, can be a, um, a fairly effective way um, on certain days, certain times a year. Um, a, a good friend of mine, um, he's, got, he's got a really good story. When, uh, when he was younger, when we were just getting into this, he, he was uh, working over at a Home Depot and there was a guy there that was, you know, just not, not really, I would say a, a, a devout, uh, you know, guy that knew a lot about herpetology or anything like that. But he happened to be a guy that, that would go over to Palos Verdes and catch king snakes every once in a while. And he would catch them by hiking. And like I said, we were just kind of getting into it at the time. It was like right after high school. And my buddy, well, I'm going to go up, let, let me go up there with you. And so they go up there with this guy. And I think they, I think the story was they hiked literally three of them in an afternoon, which is, you know, it's, it's not, you know, nothing extraordinary, but it's, it's a, it's an effect. It was effective was what the, you know, the, the point was. So there's different ways you could find them. If you know what type of weather that they like, that makes them crawl out, which is a lot of it's like the, when you're close to the coast, it's like the Marine layers, mm -hmm. you've got the Marine layers coming in in the morning and burning off. And then uh, there's kind of a lot of times they'll be made. Sometimes there'll be a warm part in the middle of the day, but a lot of times a, a Marine layer or something will come in in the afternoon as well. And they kind of, you know, they like those, uh, they like those pressure changes where the clouds kind of come back and forth and knock the sun down a little bit, but maybe it was allowed to kind of warm up a little bit that day or, um, so there's different if effective ways to, to look for cow kings and it all depends on where you're at. Obviously, if you're out in the desert, um, flipping boards, isn't going to be as, as effective, you know, on the board front, um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about laying boards, flipping boards, uh, maybe turning boards was what we should say, but we always say flipping. So, you know, lifting, uh, lifting boards. Uh, there we go. Fun dad. Fun dad. Brian yeah. Hyde's always used the word lifting. Yeah. And then the, the for, etiquette for the of what it should you stumble onto someone's board line and you're going to like, let's be real. Most people are going to flip it. The whole etiquette of like, returning it back to the way it should be and what should happen to the people that don't do that. <laughs> so, it, okay. So, right. And what was the, what the first part of the question is just, just the general, in general, yeah. what, what was the first part again? The Making the assumption that people are listening that haven't necessarily gone herping before just defining a board line and the importance right, of that to in the endeavor and, and, and the etiquette of, right. of, of utilizing one that may not be your own. Right. So, so basically like it, it just goes kind of, kind of right back to what, what I was just describing previously about how we hunt for king, king snakes. So let's say you're in any, any type of coastal environment. 
in California, let's say it's from from Monterey to San Diego, and you have you have coastal grasslands that these things are that these king snakes are found in. So if you want to go, if somebody wants to go out and find that species that day, and like I said, you want to use that method that I did mention, where you're just hiking and just looking for them. Your people are that's obviously something you can try, and it can be effective. But let's just face it: certain times of year, um, if there's if there's a large array of flat objects out in a field, um, and everybody knows that from I think the East Coast to the West Coast, that that can be an extremely productive way to find reptiles. So, if that if said uh, objects were not there whatsoever to begin with, let's just say it was a completely um, overgrown field with not a single object to turn. And then you have some people that take it upon themselves, right? Because it's because they're willing to do the work or take the risk or whatever, whatever it, it really is and set something out in a field. Um, that's, that's basically what you're looking at as far as the ethics, the morality of it. You have somebody else comes along and finds something else that, um, you know, and, and, people that, that are getting to this level, we all know what a board line is. Um, but that's, that's basically what, that's basically what a board line is, is something that, uh, it's an array of objects. It could be boards, tins, anything really that somebody's put out. I don't, I, I would try to never place anything besides boards and tins because, you know, uh, just anything else is kind of just, um, you know, you're throwing, like putting like carpet or plastic into the environment and, yeah. Um, the boards will end up disappearing and the tins don't really hurt anything really. They, uh, you know, um, but basically that's what it is, is, is a, is a board line is something that somebody's placed out. If it's just one or two objects, it's kind of hard to really call it a board line or call it, mm-hmm. but if you really set out an array and you put in some work and it's, it's, it's something where somebody's put in some work and, and especially if they've taken the time to, to, uh, to hide it. And to kind of put it in a place where it's out of sight. And then let's say you have somebody else that comes along um, and they happen to find it. Um, well, it's it's one of those things. Um, you can treat it several different ways. I mean, some people say finders keepers. They say, um, you know, uh, you don't own you don't own said uh, hillside or field. So and, and, and yes, you put in the work, but you don't own the place. So we're, we found it. We're going to continue to hunt it. So if that's the case, and so what I'll, what I'll say with Los Angeles, it's a little bit different than San Diego or Riverside, or um, what I'll say is if somebody's hunting our board lines, we're going to know, and um, we, usually know, we usually know who it is. Um, but it's, the, our board lines are very hard to have somebody else m- messing with them, hunting them, or doing anything without us knowing um, and it's not very likely that, that people will find a lot of our board lines, but in, in most of our cases, we've kind of, it's all been within the family. I'll just say we haven't had a lot, a large problem with other people finding our board lines. We hide our materials really well. Um, they're, they're all really hidden and, and disguised. Um, we've, we've learned to put them in places where, where, where people aren't going to find them, where people aren't going to take the time to, we, we go the extra mile to kind of get them you know, into places where people just don't want to go traipsing and, and, and looking for stuff. Um, but of course we've had, we've had different times where somebody's come along and, and found our, our boards and, and, and they've, they've turned them in a few places. We've, we've, we've made the mistake of putting some stuff somewhere where it's just way too, 
way too visible or or whatever and 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 in that situation we just basically what we do is 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 if it becomes a problem we just you just pick them up and move them mm -hmm. um and then a lot of those situations were just um they were literally like beginning um novice like uh I don't even know if you'd want to call them herpers or they were just, it, it might've been someone that, that knew something about herpetology or just somebody that just knew you could flip something to find a, an alligator lizard or something, or maybe a snake. And they, they're literally taking our boards and flipping them completely out of place, you know, and that kind of a thing. And, and it, you know, what you, you find that like two times in a row, you find a whole line with that done. You, you just, what you do is you move it. Um, and then there's been other cases where other people have found our stuff, and these are these are people that we that we know that are that are in the in the in our let's just say our sort of family people that have shared information with us that, and and um, you know some some of the spots that we that we hunt there there there's other people that know of these spots as well, and and you know so occasionally your paths kind of cross, but but basically to close to close that in closing to just to wrap that all up. As far as the morality thing, you're either, in my opinion, with, with, with herpetology, you're either moral or immoral. That's just my opinion. So we have people yep. that have like um, fibbed about, I, I say fibbed, it's like a nice way to put it, but they've lied about like discoveries. Like I found this, I found this rosy bow out in the desert at, at this spot when like everybody knows that they, they didn't or they have proof that they were in like another state that day or those types of things happen. Or like you said, if... If, if like this is the way we do it, if, if, if I go and explore some field somewhere, let's say it's in Los Angeles, let's say maybe it's in Orange County, which is not uh, what I consider like my territory, even though I do occasionally go down there and I find someone else's board line. Um, I don't need to hunt somebody else's board line to either find what I'm looking for or to make my day like any better, whether they're what kind of king snake is under what uh, board that might be there. Like. I'm more happy just doing the work myself and like, we'll go down to orange County and put our own board line down there. If we feel that we want to check out a spot or, but if I find a board line, this is the way I'll do it. And this is if for anyone that happens to be listening, this is the way I, I call it. So you've taken time to traipse out into a field. Oh, maybe, maybe you think there's some boards over there. Like you have that intuition, right? Like that looks like a great spot where somebody could have set up a board liners, or maybe I see something over there and you've taken the time to traipse all the way over there. This is the way I call it. If you're a good moral person, you, you get your one flip right then and there, in my opinion. So you've taken the time to traipse all the way out there through the mustard, get all cut up. Now you find what appears to be somebody's board line. In my opinion, if you're like a moral person, you, you check it once right then and there. Because, of course, yeah, I mean, yeah, you took the time to go all the way out there. Of course, you're going to inspect it, you know, and who knows? There's board lines that people have set up that they've never even gone back and checked like 10 years later. So you, there's no way to tell it's this person's board line or that. So you, you check it that one time. Um, and then from there, in my opinion, you, you know, I don't know. You, you basically maybe keep an eye on it, see if it's being hunted, maybe, maybe try to find out um, – whose it belongs to if, if you if you're that plugged in you know what i mean but um if, if it's something you can tell that somebody else is uh hunting it that looks like the person that's placed it i don't know i i my whole thing is i just uh, for for myself i i'd much rather go do it myself i'd yeah. much rather hunt my own boards um have my own spots that that nobody else is hunting and i have no problem finding that myself now some people um 
they they don't want to put in the work or they they just want a little something a little bit easier they want to be pointed right to where some something is where you can go you know look through some look through something look through a rock pile a, a board line or whatever um but that's that's basically it it's a with 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 herping we do it's it's an important thing to bring up is is is, is herping morals and it, it it translates beyond board lines and king snakes and things like that too it goes right into to um, populations of zonata and, and boas and certain rock piles and spots that get and and, and um, I still think there's plenty of ground and even if we're talking about um, urban king snakes in Los Angeles, um, there's still plenty of ground for for uh, other other parties to come along and 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 if they people wanted to try their hand at it and and there's you know plenty of ground that needs that could use a couple of extra pieces to to turn and that kind of a thing yeah um but then again like i said it's, it's not it's not for everyone so you're always going to have those people that want to just do it the easy way yeah yeah when we were on that you nailed exactly what i was getting at um when we were down in Florida, uh, the area that we went to was south of Lake Okeechobee. Pretty much everybody that's anybody that does anything with Florida king snakes knows that that's the area you go to to find Florida king snakes. Uh, and I see Hub's book in the background there. I mean, he goes so far as to put a map and tell a story about going to Bell Glade, and South Bay, and Clewiston, and so that's where he went. And uh, after reading, you know, everything, and I'm a visitor there, so that's definitely not where I'm going to be herping every day, but we just wanted to see if we could find them, and then I had no intentions of taking them. The, the one we found alive, hopefully still slithering around the cane fields today, but when we were down there, you, you go out in the morning in March because they're out basking, uh, and I had myself and the students who were in these canal banks, and we're looking, and when you were on their habitat, that area is herped by a lot of people. And I've probably in my herping career, when I've been doing that for about the past 20 years, I think I've stumbled on maybe two or three board lines. And in that week, like we were stumbling on two or three board lines an hour. <laughs> it was like insane. Oh, like I've wow. never seen yeah. this much artificial cover put out specifically for snakes. And we kind of had this conflicted moment of like, well, do we flip it? Do we not flip it? Like, what do we do? And I said, we're down here to find this animal, guys. We're going to flip it, but we're not going to like destroy it. So another aspect of this is like, if you actually do the flipping, you got to ask the question, am I going to take everything I find? I pray to God that's not anybody's intention that's out herping because we want to make sure that you know we have a resource that's available to everybody. But the other big deal right. is... What a board line is, is it's essentially you are creating microhabitats in a sea of undesirable microhabitat for the snake. So if you don't put the board back into the footprint of the board, uh, you are eliminating those humidity gradients, the temperature gradients, the prey availability that the board line represents. I mean, I can tell mm -hmm. you, we didn't flip any king snakes. We flipped a crap load of cotton rats, though, <clears throat> and... Every one of those cotton rats was a juvenile cotton rat that could have been food for a king snake. So um, the other part of this is just making sure that you you respect the fact that, like you said, someone's put in that work. Don't just flip it lackadaisically to go blitzing through the line. If you're going to do that, you want to make sure everything's going back into that footprint, that you're sealing up that edge around the boards or the tires or the carpets, whatever it may be, tins. 
in that you respect the land because you know if, if you don't do that, you can take make an awesome board line crap. Uh, I know when I was in graduate school, right, right. we set up board lines for salamanders, not for snakes over here in Appalachia. And we were setting these things up off of trails to see if salamanders would move across the walking path because it turns out a walking path to a salamander is like a gigantic desolate plane to a human being. Um, but the, but the board, the cover board arrays were very close to where the public could be. And what ended up happening in a couple of situations is they produced a lot of salamanders until one person, Lord knows who it was. It could have been like a little kid that doesn't know any better, flipped the boards mm-hmm. and then they didn't put the boards back. And in that instance, mm-hmm. five years worth I thought of you were gonna, I thought you were going to say that uh, – <laughs> oh, you didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought okay. you were going to say the kids stepped on no. <laughs> it. Because <laughs> that, ha- that, that happens yeah. too, you know. So anyway, so there's – yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit about, okay, so you've had your banner day and you found – like what – in your opinion, like when you find a, a Cali King and you decide, okay, you're entering my locality breeding group, what does the animal have to have? Is it, a, a, and I know there's a continuum here, because for some of these locality, it could literally be, we don't have any and we found them. So you're entering the group. It could be on the other end of the mm-hmm. spectrum, you know, we're looking for a specific demographic, a specific, a specific size, a specific sex, like just kind of talk about the process that, that or, or what it might be when you're deciding, okay, I'm going to start a, a line of this locale. Yeah. What does that look like? And what or so, selecting, selecting stock. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so basically for me um, with the, with cow Kings, I definitely, it's, 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 it's not like with a rosy bow, I would say that's, that's the way it is as far as where you just said that like uh, just because it's a new spot, we're going to keep it. Like that's more to me is more of a rosy boa thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as far as like the urban cow king thing, and that's the thing where um, I consider um, obviously a wide number of different localities within LA. Um, whereas at, at one period of time, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people might have considered all of LA one locality. Um, but because of the current, uh, the overbuilding and, and the way the way everything is hyper developed and the way these habitats are are fragmented and completely separated and, and no longer exchanging any gene flow. Um, so we have several different localities uh, picked out. Um, and, it, and and for me, um, let's just say you, you caught a, a abandoned animal or somebody caught a abandoned animal at, at like a, a some field in L.A. that's that's like a, you know, a spot where that's totally mind blowing or something. And it's just a, a spot where nobody else has found one. It's just some, some super urban spot and somebody finds a king snake. That's just normal. Like, let's say, let's say for myself though, for my own um, collection, I, I don't necessarily um, need to start a, a new breeding line with, with that animal, unless I know that there is either um, recessive whittier gene there, because like, like I said, if, if you've got just two, if you got just two totally normal banded kings from at Los Angeles and there's no Whittier gene present, um, you're basically just um, I've done a fair amount of breeding and you're just going to basically produce those same um, fairly normal banded kings. There's not going to be too much that's going to pop out. Um, the Newport gene is dominant. So you you have to have a, a physical Newporter to, to start a line with that. So um, let's say that I knew that there was like a Whittier 
that was found in the area, or let's say I knew for a fact that that Whittier gene was present. And when I say Whittier gene, that's the uh, that's basically um, also it, I'm I'm going to go. I hope to go into that here with the podcast. I'm going to hope to go into kind of my definition. But the if if those that are familiar with uh, Brian Hub's book. Um, you'll see the section on um, Los Angeles and Orange County. And it talks about Newport, um, the Newport Long Beach morph, which I'm sure much more people are familiar with. And a lot of people are familiar with the Whittier gene now too, but most people are calling it the mud gene, um, which is, I think a lot more people are are familiar with the the term mud morph. Um, So basically the Whittier gene is, it's a it's a hypermelanistic morph that of, of the cow king that pretty much almost exclusively exists in Los Angeles County. Um, I want to say there's there's I want to say I've heard records. I've never actually seen a picture myself, so I can't um, I can't say it's it's for sure. But but I, I want to say there's there's stories of there's there's uh, uh, records of specimens being found in Orange County, but it's a, it's a morph that almost exclusively exists in the Los Angeles basin. What, what is a specifically makes a Whittier morph? Um, a Whittier morph basically has, um, it has a, a, a very, um, what is it? It has a basically a very defining characteristic in the head marking and the belly 100% of the time is a solid brown belly. So that's, those are the basic rules for a Whittier morph is every single specimen that's ever been located, that's ever been produced in captivity. So we're talking totally about the, the Marina del Rey line, which is the line that most people are familiar with. That's the line that Gary Kiesler um, started that line um, sometime in like the mid 2000s. And Don Huffman was the original finder of the stock. He was the original collector uh, down in Marina del Rey. And those were collected in... Um, was between 2001 and 2004. Don Huffman found the very first um, specimens, let's say, that made it um, that were that were properly kind of because before that there was some specimens floating around. There was some guys in the 60s and 70s and 80s that had these. They had these specimens. They were and they at the time they were just calling them like dark, ugly kings. <laughs> but kind of what I'm talking about is. In more modern times where people were actually starting to properly identify these snakes and, and properly getting them into the hobby as, as like a locality type thing instead of just what, what happened in the 70s and 80s and, 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 and all the way back into the probably the 60s was these guys like Lloyd Lemke or whoever these different these different guys, Zweifel, um, I forget what his first name is, Richard Zweifel. Um, was doing a lot of breeding and he was a, he was a biologist and doing a lot of studies and breeding in the 1980s. And, um, but they would take like a King that they caught in LA that was some weird, well, this is some weird hyper. And then they, but they wouldn't breed it like locality. They, they just take some San Diego King mm-hmm. and they would try to breed out, they would try to breed out the, uh, the gene and, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That way. Um, so what I'm saying is the Don Huffman specimens were really the first specimens that, that properly, um, made it into like a locality style breeding thing. And, 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 and it was Don giving the snakes over to Gary Kiesler. And then Gary took the, uh, took the snakes. There was a, the, both of the original snakes were uh, females from what I remember. There was a, a, a banded animal caught from the field that um, I want to say, 
I, I, I won't say, I don't remember the story correctly or not. Either it either was or wasn't Het. If it was Het, then they got the they got the muds the first time, and if it wasn't, he had to he had to uh, you know to produce the Hets and and breed back. But he ended up um, getting getting these animals into production where he was breeding mud, you know Whittier to Whittier and able to produce large clutches of them, and and that's where they started making their way. Um, out in the hobby and, and people were you know at first it was people that just knew gary that were kind of getting him and then and then more and more it was like at the at the like pomona reptile show and anaheim reptile show um he would have his booth there and, and they just kind of became more and more popular so back to what makes a, a whittier a whittier and the the term mud i want to go into in just a little bit because um basically my um the case that I want to make, I want to, I, my theory with the Newports and the Whittiers is I, they're, for me, they're two completely different morphs. And I, I, for me, it's, it's, it's undeniable. It's just because their, their markings are 100% consistently different. And the markings are always the same on a Whittier and they're always the same on a Newport. So a Whittier animal is an extremely dark, hypermelanistic morph. Um, one of the very first specimens that was ever found was the um, it was the um, Whittier. There's a Whittier morph specimen in Brian's book that's from uh, Friendly Hills Whittier, and I, I don't, I'm not sure the exact date on that one, but that that snake exists in the uh, LA County uh, Natural History Museum in a pickle jar, hmm. and that snake was basically one of those um it was almost like a near uh not i would never say perfectly banded because there's always usually some form of aberrancy but it was basically a near perfectly banded whittier specimen so you you imagine like a a hyper melanistic banded king snake with an extremely dark head with a with a solid brown belly um but beyond that um we've you know obviously uh going fast forwarding to the early 2000s um huffman found this striped variety down in marina del rey um since then um i found one in baldwin hills that had a reverse stripe on it so it basically had a cool. kind of you know a mosaic or reverse stripe section to it um and then basically we have another spot that's in the same vicinity uh, near the um, the LA International Airport, and we have found two specimens there. And one of the specimens was kind of like a, a still what I would call more of a banded whittier, but it was kind of a little bit more aberrant. But it was very highly kind of banded. And then we found another specimen that was almost perfectly banded um, with these really interesting wedges of uh, of dark pigment like within the band so it's just a bit it's a really it was almost kind of looked like if you've ever seen some conjuncta kings from baja um kind of something similar it was uh, basically a, a a really nice banded whittier specimen and so just to recap as far as the the whittier gene um the whittier the whittier king snake has a lateral stripe running basically above the lip and straight through the eye on the snake oh, cool. and um that's basically a 100 percent consistent marking that i've seen on every single specimen I, i've i've looked at all you know all the animals that gary's produced um um you know i've seen a couple in the wild i've produced i've been able to produce the uh, lax ones so far both of both of the ones that we've that that i've uh, found have been babies so it's taken a while to to grow them up and get the the project going but um 
but yeah, they basically it's a 100% consistent marking. It's an it's an extremely dark head. The the, the whole dark of the, the whole top of the the king snake's head is is extremely dark, and then there's like a very de defining um, like horizontal or lateral stripe that kind of runs through the eye, right right above the lip, right. So, um, and then basically you have a solid a solid brown belly 100% of the time, and then like a like a San Diego morph or or uh, Central Valley morphs the markings or aberrancies will continue right across the top of the tail, you know? So a Newport morph um, on the contrast will have um, basically normal coastal calking head markings. So you just have that normal mask to it, right? But there's also occasionally um, a hypermelanistic Newporter that's found or either, either or, or produced in captivity. And the hypermelanistic Newporter will have a head very similar to it if you're familiar with like a Long Beach uh, Signal Hill King or, or any hypermelanistic, just a normal hypermelanistic banded king snake from Los Angeles, which has kind of just a broken up, basically instead of having that full mask, it has kind of a, just a broken up, um, you know, tiger striping on the lip and, and, and kind of just broken up uh, speckling. They have little mustaches on the mm -hmm. snouts. And that's just very consistent with just a hypermelanistic band that you find anywhere from from Whittier to to Long Beach to uh, to even even up near uh, Marina del Rey or, or wherever. Um, and then the, the most important thing about a new porter is 100 percent of the time it has a chocolate top tail. So from from the vent back to the tip of the tail on the dorsal, there's never any markings of yellow. Uh, it, there's there's markings of yellow on the side of the tail, but as far as the dorsal, every single new porter, every single pure new porter that, that exists within that gene, the, the the chocolate Brian calls it the chocolate top tail, but it really is a it's a 100% consistent trait, and and I'll even say further that um, I've pointed it out to a few people, and it just kind of blows their mind when they really notice it. But when you really look at like um, um, designer stock and and non-locality california king snake stock like you'll look at these animals with like there's you know they're just uh line you're just uh line bred or project bred for generation after generation nobody really knows the original uh source of the animals but you've got some like high white king or uh possibly like a, a banana type king or, or just any of these various designer morphs and you will see um chocolate top tails on mm -hmm. on uh a, 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 a fair amount of them and and of course after years and years and years of line and, and project breeding they're they're able to break that barrier and, and and you basically have a an animal with solid uh markings instead of speckles like the san diego that has markings on top of the tail so it's like a new porter with markings on top of the tail they're able to break that barrier but that chocolate tops tail is still a gene that will consistently pop out in clutches that you know are just have been in the hobby you know these these stock has been in the hobby for who knows how long so it really is um in my opinion los angeles is one of the it's possibly one of the only um counties that i can think of that actually has literally two um two completely different stripe morphs now the interesting thing about that is um it, like so for example in brian's book and then ross padilla is also kind of one of the big um 
but Brian Hubbs is common King Snake book. And then Ross Padilla is one of the big authorities on, on the LA Kings too. He's got a website. And, um, but let's take Brian's book, for example, he kind of, if you, if you look at his section, he kind of lumps them all together within the Newport group. Um, and that's just kind of how he did it. He calls them a, a, a Newport Long Beach mud, uh, mud morph. And, and, but like I said, um, for myself personally, when, when you've caught um, a couple of these animals now in the wild, you've, you've bred them, you've seen them bred by other people over and over again. I mean, like I said, you guys just look for yourself, start looking yeah. at some different pictures. I can, I'd be more than happy to provide pictures of animals, but it's uh, these, these traits are 100% consistent. The other thing with the new Porter is it, it the, the Newport Long Beach morph does not have to have a, uh, a solid belly of any kind. A lot of them just have checkered bellies, but they can also have a solid yellow belly. A lot of them have a solid Brown belly, but the solid belly is not a, it's not a, um, it's not a required uh, factor to make it that to 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 be that morphs. To whereas because um, we they, they we have they the, I've produced hypermelanistic Newporters from my Marina del Rey stock that uh, from 15 20 feet away they they sort of look like a a, a Whittier gene uh, because it's that it's an aberrant morph with that darker color, but uh, like I said the. The defining characteristics are there uh, basically 100% of the time. Even with the hypermelanistic Newporter, you still always have the chocolate top tail. And it's it's basically got a head marking just like a Long Beach Grease King. And some of them have solid brown bellies and some of them just have checkered bellies. You know, so it's it, it's it's a different it's a different thing, um, you know, uh, between the between the two different morphs. I'm not sure if there is any other. Um, you know, I was thinking of the, trying to think of that earlier. If there is any other. Um, cow king populations that have two def definite striped morphs. And that's, that's the way I look at it nowadays. Um, but the thing that's, like I said, the thing that's really interesting about that though, is that basically as far as all the research that I've done for the LA, the Los Angeles basin, um, where people have found things historically, uh, the, the specimens that I know about the specimens I, I know other people have found, um, basically Whittier, Snakes are found always in the vicinity or somewhere really near where new porters are found, and and, and vice versa. Like the, the the and and it's the same thing with that with that hypermelanistic gene, that 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 grease king gene that we all know about, the, the Signal Hill animals. Um, all of those snakes are all found within the Los Angeles basin, and and they're usually um, you know you can imagine with the city being gone. Like let's just say when you know when without any of that development that they they all that was all a related uh, gene pool um but you have you you really do have um you know you have at least three very distinct groups the newport the whittier and then you have like a hypermelanistic bandit if you want to call that like a third group can we um, um real quick the grease kings i actually have them yes um and yes. i've been you know so i'm all the way over here East Coast, nowhere near California, never been to California. And everything I've read about them basically says that the locales that they came from have been wiped out and developed into parks and and things like that. And I was always one I've always wondered like, is that actually the case? Or is it like is that phenotype phenotype literally just in herpetoculture, or are they still you can still find them in the Long Beach? I think it's Long Beach area so the phenotype uh 
is com- com- completely still exists out there. All right, there you go. Um, especially, especially when you're talking about outside of that particular field. Mm-hmm. Um, just, 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 just so you guys can all have a sigh of relief. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not destroyed yet. Um, You've done your the, civic uh, duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean these animals are always completely under threat. Uh, the, the, whether whether the city wants to make a place into like a manicured park or they want to put a, a building and a parking lot on top of it, they never can seem to just leave these these overgrown little side areas alone. There's always some either a developer or the city, like you said, wants to get a, a hold of it in a public uh, terms. Um, for a lot of these areas, some of the some of the other areas are probably they're probably have a better future because they've been made into like uh, proper um, uh, you know uh, uh, wildlife reserves yeah. like like Marina del Rey. Um, but so as far as Signal Hill, um, they came in and they they made that into like sort of a it, it, what it what it was. So here's here's history of Signal Hill is uh, people have been collecting king snakes. I want to say they're possibly since the 60s but certainly um certainly through the 70s 80s um uh really heavily in the 90s there was there was guys that were going there like uh, brian hines and uh, paul linham and, and different guys that were uh you know probably paul linham was one of the first guys to really get them get them into the the hobby and then i think gary keesler was another person that that got was getting that into production but um basically they came in Gosh, I want to say it was sometime around 2010. Don't 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 quote me correctly, yeah. but uh, some sometime about 10 years or more ago, they they came in with this idea. At first, they were going to make it into a the next sporting arena, and they had all these ideas with it. But they decided to make it into like a city park with like uh, you know like hiking trails and that kind of a thing. And basically, what Signal Hill was um, before that was it was a it was a it's an old oil field, which is something that if you if you've been through Los Angeles, certainly in the Long Beach area, if if anyone's familiar with that area, um, you'd be very familiar with that. It's there's 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 um, as you drive through certain parts of Long Beach and and lots of different parts of LA, but but really certainly Long Beach, there's lots of different fields that are not developed per se aside from the fact that they have these uh what do they call them oil pumps and 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 oil oil derricks oil derricks and and oil activity going on these are these are oil leases these are properties that are owned by oil companies some of them have no fences around them and you can just walk right into them there's uh many many more fields down there besides just the the signal hill field itself and i'll say that the signal hill spot was kind of called this they called it the signal hill spot which was the it's the particular field and i have no problem really giving the exact information on that particular field because um they i know brian hines uh gave out the information years ago on field her form when they first said they were going to develop it and it is it is pretty much a um it's a spot that's very widely known, but it's it's off of uh, Orange Avenue down there in Long Beach, and there's a cemetery that butts up to the west side of it, and the west end of the field was the really really the area where a lot of the king snakes came from, um, and and that was really the the only part of the property that that had what you call like a proper um, field, if you will, to it with like with like a nice uh, grass pack to it, proper. Uh, proper soil content and just the good, good rodent holes. It was like right behind the cemetery. There was this little area that was, you know, um, you know, 50 yards by 50 yards, something like that. And that was kind of where, where a lot of the king snakes came from yet. 
there were people that, you know, I, I remember finding a shed one time way on the forward part of the, the property and, and people found kings in other parts of the property, but most of them came from right there. And what happened was they started, the city started talking about doing this, these projects going into the late 2000s. And they, the first thing they did was they let this, uh, it was this like um, organic farming co-op people come in there and where do they pick to set up their little farm they literally plop them right in there and they go they they go right with the where the the main field was where, where most of the people most of the boards were most people had found them and they uh they started doing this or this farming thing and then the city started coming in and uh they had all these huge truckloads of like mulch that they that they you know mm-hmm. they got from some you know they were grinding up trees somewhere in the other part of the city. Now we got to dump all this mulch. So let's let's take it down to that you know we, we don't want all those weeds and stuff growing down there at the at our new park. So we'll just dump a bunch of mulch out. So they between that the, there was this farm thing, and then they started coming in with these truckloads of mulch and just dumping it all over the field. And that was kind of kind of like the beginning of the end. There was certain guys that were just like over it at that point um and then shortly after that the city kind of they there's a there's a hill just above that that's all part of the same property um and they 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 the city came in and kind of put in a parking lot and like a little trailhead uh park area and basically uh what they they opened this oil field that was it was a place that was fenced in um, with with like a you know old rusty chain link fence. It was a place where in the in the mid two thousands you're basically pulling up and and you're sneaking through a little hole in the fence to get into it, you know. And they they open it up in, into like a public space now. And um, I would still say there probably is um, a pair or two of Getula. I'll just say that probably still living within that property even because it's still yeah. it's a large property. There's there's just certain things. There's like huge concrete piles that just are never going to be moved and just different. They, they, you know, they have their preferred habitat, but they also have their habitat that they'll cling on to, to exist, you know? Um, so it's possible. There's still a couple Kings in there. Um, there's also other fields in, in Long Beach. There's other fields that, that it, right in the area that, that okay. um, could have snakes or, or um, there's other habitat in the area that certainly still has uh snakes reptile life and 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 definitely um getula in the in the area so daniel i mean obviously with some of our keepers um you know kind of connecting with natural history of the animals and you know talking about some of their natural habitats what is your preferential keeping of king snakes you know how do you in your collection set up animals temperature requirements because over the years i you know i and this has come up multiple times with other people too as well as you know some of the temperatures which we keep some of these animals is rather excessive yeah. in terms of keeping in in private collections yeah 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 um well what i've so what i found basically um temperature wise where i've been keeping mine is i i have really good luck lately like just right around 85 um, just cause that's, that's kind of what I've heard from most of the information I, I've get gotten from other, you know, um, hobbyists and, and, you know, people that I talk to that, that have good success. That's a number that, that I hear thrown around. That's, that's always good to try to at least attain that, that temperature and then try to not go too far above that temperature. 
um, that's something that I've kind of learned and I've, I've had really good luck just, um, keeping my thermostats right around there. Sometimes I'll bump it up a little bit. Um, other times of the year, I'll bump it down a little bit if the, if the, the house is heating up or, or things like that. Um, but that's kind of the range that I've had really good luck in. I've, I, I think they get, they get good belly heat and are able to digest. And then at the same time, you're not, you know, you're not worried about any kind of like overheating and, and really just, you know, having experience, like just, you know, seeing them active in the wild and, and you feel the, the rock that they're hanging out under or the whatever. And it's, especially with the coastal cow kings, it's never, it's never, uh, it's never really warm. It's there. They're not a, they're not a, an animal that, 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 you know, will really likes to tolerate a too hot, too high of a temperature. So you want to, you know, basically I, like I said, mid mid eighties is what I try to try to keep them pretty consistent at you know, throughout their, their period of activity for the year. And do you keep in cages or are you keeping in rack systems? Um, a uh, little bit of both. I, I do a little bit of both. Um, I have some, um, I, I used to have, uh, more racks, but I have some, um, like sweater tubs just with the lids and I just do them that way. Cause I don't, um, I don't have them set up with the rack system, but a lot of my stuff I try to keep in my own, um, handmade aquariums. Um, just, just because I, it's more just for a display factor for me. Um, I just, I just, I just like, um, you know, basically having, I like the glass. Um, so I basically, um, I try to go like a 20, 25 gallon tank, um, something pretty good size for like an adult King. Um, I try to go, you know, at least 12, 13 inches wide, um, you know, at, at least uh, two foot long. And I, I have all my aquariums uh, turn the sideways on the shelf that where the, the you know, so I get my, my, on my max uh, storage on my shelf system and everything. You know, basically, like a, you see a lot of uh, old school, uh, like Rosie Boa breeders, they're kind of similar to their setup, like Gary Kiesler, uh, Randy Limber, kind of similar to how their snake rooms look. Um, and basically I'll do some, uh, I'll do some separation on the glass. Um, I'll, I'll have like a vinyl, um, uh, visual barrier. So the snakes aren't like, you know, uh, you know, they're not looking, wasting extra energy, stressing themselves out, you know, uh, psyching each other out of being, you know, right next to each other in the next cage over that gives them a little more, uh, they feel more, you know, more secure, like they are in a, in a, in a rack system or a sweater box, you know, um, and then basically all, uh, you know, basically just, uh, just a, a large enough water dish for them to, to submerge if they want to. Um, I'll do uh, humid. Um, I'll do like a humid box, like a, with a um, coconut, you know, a bed of beast type, type thing or that, you know, for, uh, for like a humid hide um, somewhere in like the middle of the tank. And then I just, I usually try to have at least two hides in there for them and have the heat, you know, completely on one side of the tank, but still plenty enough room for them to get right onto it. And, uh, like I said, here, here in, in Southern California with the, just, uh, you know, keeping these animals within their, their part of their, where they're the part of the world where they're from and not, you know, just the same, same humidity, same, same everything. Um, it's, it's really, they're, they're very, very easy to keep just a basic, I use, a. a uh, pine shavings bedding myself personally because I think it's it's uh, just to me it's softer it's obviously softer than the I like it better than like the aspen or anything like that I always just try to find a, I always try to find a, a nice soft uh, bedding 
but I, um, I'll use a lot of pine shavings for, for just the bulk of my stuff, but I'll also do, uh, I'll also do uh, beta beast and do some more, uh, kind of natural, um, setups and things like that. And just kind of be, have fun with it and that kind of a thing. But, uh, basically my, my whole thing is to just get them at a, at a good stable temperature. They can digest their food, be comfortable. And I just try not to stress them out too much. I'll, you know, I, I don't, I don't hold my Kings too terribly much. Um, I do hold them, but the, uh, the rosy boas, if you don't hold them, they'll, they'll start biting you. <laughs> um, but my, my Kings personally seem to just be, they, they, they like to just be kind of left alone fed. Um, you know, I hold them every once in a while just to let them know that I'm, that I'm there. And, uh, you know, that's, they're, 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 they really, I mean, you know, everybody knows cow Kings. They just, in certain parts of the country, they, it couldn't be any, really an easier, snake to keep in my opinion really feeding yeah. wise what size prey item for like juveniles and adults and then how frequent because there's actually a lot of information out there for people because this is one yeah, of those beginner yeah. you know snakes but there's also some nuance to them so uh how's that what's that yeah, look like? there could be a range with that but for me the the feeding size is much more important than, than, than really sticking to like a, um, a strict frequency. That's for me, that's more people that have, um, they have, they have the time, they have the money and they want to grow the animals, uh, quickly and get them to breeding size. Um, basically my animals, I'm feeding them basically once every week. Um, some of the bigger animals, I, I might feed them every two weeks, my, my big adults and stuff like that. But basically it just starting with, um, some of the some of the hatchlings, uh, the I, you'll have really small hatchlings um, from some of my females. That'll there's a there's a, a certain female I have that produces uh, a lot of eggs. She'll have like a larger clutch, but there'll be smaller eggs, and she'll produce a really small baby. Um, a lot of those hatchlings will require a lizard um, or a lizard scenting process to kind of get them turned over with a really small uh pinky eventually like a like a just a fresh born pinky and you just gotta you gotta scent them you gotta wash them you gotta do different things to because these these king snakes want to have um lizards mm -hmm. they uh, when they're, they're some of them aren't some of them are when they're whatever depends on the female or whatever it is and especially a lot of it's the size too but some of these babies are just basically pre-programmed i think um for a lizard to be their first meal, which makes a lot of sense when you look at their habitat. Um, but basically it's, it's just uh, various size pinkies for the, uh, for the hatchlings and, until they grow, um, you know, until they get, you know, I, I don't know, whatever, whatever size, but you know, what's basically, I just, I just go by the size of the, um, you know, like the middle portion of the snake you're looking at, you know, once they, once they start putting on, a few inches once you're getting them about uh you got them about six months down the line or so that's when i'll start switching into uh more of like a, a fuzzy like full time and start pushing up the size of the fuzzy um but you know the the, the king snakes i've seen can really um they can hand they can handle a bigger meal potentially than than, than other especially like a rosy bow or something that's something where you really want to be a little more careful the size um and and, and i you know i I've had that problem with king snakes too. Um, every once in a while, you'll you'll you're not thinking correctly, and you'll 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 give them something a little bigger than you should have, or whatever you thought it was. You thought it was ready or something, and then it's it's regurged. Um, but I don't have too many of those problems. It's it's pretty few and far in between. Um, 
but yeah, you just they're basically just stepping up the 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 prey size. I I do not feed bigger um, to you know than they can take, and I, I I definitely don't. I'm not the person that has to feed uh, hyper frequently, like every four to five days. Um, for me, it's simply just because I don't have necessarily the, the, the that time per se to do it that frequently, or the or the the cost. I I, I just I feed my animals. Um, enough for them to grow. They definitely grow, I would still say, at an above average rate than they would in the wild. Um, and they they hold weight really well, too. That's another thing, too, where, like we were talking about with temperature, when when you have the temperature dialed in properly, um, you know, that they, they also seem to hold their body weight, you know, much more stably, you know. Um, but yeah, it's basically just, like I said, I, all my adults are just on large mice. Um, okay. I used to supplement with, um, with like a rat pup, you know, I, I give them a few rat pups, uh, in the, in this, you know, um, uh, uh, from, uh, emergence from hibernation to, to give them that body fat. Um, but I've been having trouble sourcing the, the rat pups lately. I'm getting my mice from, uh, from a, a local friend of mine. So it's, he's mostly just doing mice now, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just basically I, I do large mice, and, and if, if the king snake is is a large king snake, I'll maybe I'll give it a, a mouse and a and a hopper, or maybe maybe uh, if something's really big, you give it you know two medium mice, or you know you bump it up if the animal needs something a little bit more than a, a large mouse, and I'll bump it up. But you know, basically, like I said, with the temperatures dialed in properly, the animals they they all seem to to hold weight, you know, just really well. So when it comes to breeding, to brumate or not to brumate, that is the question. Do you do any kind of brumation? Do you drop temps? I mean, you're literally living where the animals are, yeah. so you're the best guy on earth to tell yeah. us about this. And this has been a constant theme of our episodes as of late. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. I will mention that I no longer live in Torrance. I've lived up here in uh, Canyon Country uh, for the last, like, 10 years, which is, like, North L.A., um, so I'm up here at like 1700 feet, um, at the, down here near Soledad Canyon. It's like the, you know, foothills, the San Gabriel. So, um, it gets a little bit cooler here, uh, than it would in Torrance. And it also gets a little bit hotter. Um, I, I definitely, um, hibernate my animals, brumate, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's something I've been doing for, for many, many years. Um, I think it's good for the health of the snakes when it's done properly. Um, I think it, it definitely, um, I think it definitely helps with the breeding. I don't, I don't think it, it does anything to, to harm your breeding propositions. Yeah. I think it's, it's only something that's good. Um, so it's kind of just, it gives you, it gives you a break from the animals. You can shut down the electricity a little bit for a few months. Um, and basically my, my thing that I've really got dialed in the last few years is I have a closet, um, in my home. That's a long closet um it's it's in a part of the house that doesn't get real warm and I, it's uh, it can be com the doors can completely close so i it gets completely dark in there and i'll basically um package the animals some of them i'll even uh leave in in their cage if i can move it and some of the other ones i'll package into smaller containers um and basically set them up to hibernate um i do i do leave uh water in there with okay. them a small amount of water with my animals just in case they because uh, i i've you know that's something i've always wondered about and have with my experience over the years that's what i've done and and it, that if they if they want to move over and get a drink and plus i'll i'll check on the animals every um you know if i do if i do three months 
of hibernation, I'll, I'll, I'll check on them like three times, Okay. you know, I'll pull, I'll pull everything out. Like, like once every, you know, like a month and a half in or a month in I'll, I'll just pull everything out make sure there's still a little bit of water in that, in that nice clean dish that I put in there with them. And, and then the other big thing is too, obviously for hibernation, I mean, it's, I'm sure this has been said many times before, but obviously making sure the animals have digested yeah. their meal uh, 100%. So it's, 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 you know, kind of, I'll even taper them off to a slightly smaller meal for that last meal. And I'll make sure they get a, a, a good two weeks, you know, solid of, of proper uh, temps and make sure that they're completely, you know, evacuated. And then, and then from there, you're just slowly turning down the temperatures for about a, a week and a half, you know, two weeks and till you get them down to, uh, to hibernating. And uh, it's, it's worked out really well for me. It seems to, um, it just seems to be benefit to me, it seems to be beneficial for the animal's health. There's no doubt that, uh, that they are, they, these animals are hibernating in the wild. Um, mm -hmm. They're really, what they're doing is they're brumating. So to perfectly mimic what they're, what they're doing a lot of times in the wild, you'd have to pull them out of your closet slowly. But that's the thing is you, they don't, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't do that at home. You, you can only do what you can do in the wild. They, they have the ability to, the weather will just change in the middle of the winter time. Sometimes it get hot for a couple days and like these rosy boas or these king snakes, they'll come up to the surface. And, and what's weird is you do find them with meals in them. Yeah. Like in like January, I, you know, you, occasionally it does happen. And, and so they, they have the ability to deal with it in the wild um, to whereas you, you can only, you can only mimic it so much in your house. So, so you just put them down and most of these years, these animals are down pretty solid. They're, it's, it's these weird years where the weather's weird, where they're coming up like for, for a day or two, you know, and then going back down. So most of the time they're hibernating pretty solid for at least, you know, three months or so. What, what temps do you drop them down to? And when month wise, when would you start it? October? November. Um, I, I start in, um, November okay. and I usually go, it's like a week before Thanksgiving or usually the week, the week of Thanksgiving right around that time. Uh, because, uh, snakes are still pretty active in Southern California, um, through October. Okay. Um, so it's right around, it's right around November. It just depends on what it is, but, but coastal, Coastal cow kings for sure. Uh, I think I, I don't, I don't, I try not to put them down any longer than I have to. So it's November and then I bring them up. Um, it's usually like uh, the second week in February. It just, it just kind of depends on what the year's doing. Um, if it's a really cold year where it's really dark and the temperatures are staying really cold, I might keep them down for an extra week or so. And then if it's, if, if it just looks like things are just warming up for the year, then I might bring them up in uh early february you know but it's usually uh like a, a good uh three month three and a half month um hibernation that i that i do and is it and then oh, go ahead zach <laughs> yeah. upper 50s lower 60s the temp that you're shooting for or um I'm, I'm usually not able to get it to i'm usually not able to sustain it anywhere in the 50s okay. but but it will it will approach like 60 or maybe 59 sometimes at night during the coldest parts of the winter, but I'm definitely not doing anything special to try to artificially lower it or, or to make sure um, to, to try to trying to achieve that like 55 or yep. 59 that would be nice to achieve, 
but for me, I, I just don't think it's necessary. Um, and, and fortunately, where I, like I said, where I live, once it gets into the wintertime, um, I'm not extremely high elevation, but I'm just in the right spot at the foothills here where it uh, it stays just cool enough. And if you put them in a closet, I definitely, it definitely does not get out of the mid 60s. Okay. Um, pretty much the entire time. So that's that's basically my fail safe is when I'm looking for a hibernation spot is I'm just looking for a spot that I can close the doors and create a, a sort of like a cool pocket in the house. And my my ideal thing is just to not leave 65. Gotcha. And when I when I reach in like the, the closet, the outside of the cages will be like 65. But when you reach in and like touch the snake, it's it's usually that time of year in my closet. You've got it. The snake's got a nice cool it's got that cool cold mm -hmm. feel to it like it's it's hibernating and it's not very active and that's that's just basically like i said i'm not super exact but yeah i do i do temp gun things and check and just make sure that we're that we're achieving what we're supposed to because you you know you obviously once you get them back into the 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 high 60s or towards the 70s then they're starting to wake back up again and starting to metabolize again and you know what you don't want And what about pairing up animals? I mean, typically, what's your approach for that? Are you waiting for the first shed? Are you waiting for a few meals in the animal before actually looking at pairing animals respectively? Or or do you just wing it like I do? No, I, I usually, um, I was, I, early on, I was following a lot of, um, Ross, Ross Padilla had a lot of information just specifically on the, what he was doing with his LA Kings. Um, but I usually will wait for the first shed. Um, cause that's just something I was told early on. And that seemed to work out for me. For me, I've never been in, um, too terribly much of a hurry to just get them locked up and get them gravid for me. I know some people have, people have different reasons. They want to have them ready to go for later in the year to get them to a certain market or for a show or something like that. Um, for me, I'd rather just uh, take the extra time, make sure I put as much weight on them as I can. Um, definitely. I'll wait for the first shed. Um, I've actually been doing a lot of my breeding um, over the, over the years has been more in um, like mid late April um, and we uh, bred a lot of king snakes in May um, because that was that was originally um, what I'd heard from like Ross Padilla. He was having a lot of success doing that. So we when we this is when I first start, tried breeding them like about ten years ago. That was something that I tried early on. Was just I was just following what kind of what he, what he was uh, saying worked for him with the same type of kings. Um, so yeah, I've paired them up in early May. Um, I've paired, paired them up all through April. Um, this year I'll be trying, I'll be pairing some stuff up, um, probably in the next week or so I'll, I'll be pairing some stuff up at the end of March for the first time. Um, you know, and as far as what they're naturally doing, I'm, I'm sure in the, in the wild, I'm sure they probably, um, they probably are breeding as early as, uh, as March or late March. But, uh, you know, I think definitely for these, for these, this particular, um, region i would say I, I would say april and even even early may uh possibly even later they could be breeding because like i said these these are areas um along the coast it's 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 it, it can be much cooler yep. than, than other parts of california not it's not like the desert or, or other areas so um they can really i think these animals can can breed i'm sure they can breed into the summer too i'm sure they're just they're they're any, anything and everything can happen with kings and i um 
I, you know, from what I've heard and what I've, I think we've, we've tried, we've tried animals that haven't been hibernated that have bred like somebody's, you know, I got something, I do a breeder loan or maybe something didn't get hibernated that year. And, and the, uh, they don't have to be hibernated to, to, to breed. Um, that's, that's been well-documented. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I think, you know, they're pretty, um, pretty consistent with what they're doing in the wild, you know? So, at what age you, you you've you've had a successful clutch eggs hatch uh at what age are you breeding are you like i've seen some th some references say with land propeltis that if they if they're a breeding size at two years old you can put them together and then other people are like no they got to be three or four or five do you have an opinion on I'm, that front? i'm more I, I, yeah i'm i'm definitely more the um at least three. Yes. Um, but I'm more, I'm more the three, four, five camp. Um, I want to say I've tried, um, one or two times, uh, jumping the gun and trying to breed stuff that I was really excited about. Um, and, and, and obviously it not quite working out the way you want it to. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the eggs, um, something's wrong with the eggs or the, the babies. So, you know, um, some, you know, maybe they're not fully developed or something like that happens. Um, to me, those are the issues you run into when you breed a, a female of any type of snake too young. Cause it's like the same thing. Cause in my experiences with Rosie boas and cow Kings and that both things can happen when you jump the gun and you get too excited instead of just waiting another year or two, just waiting till the time is right. That's more, that's more my approach, which is why, it's, uh, you know, uh, I've been talking about a lot of my projects for so long and they've, they've taken so long to get off the ground because I'm one of those guys that just, I'm willing to just wait till the time is right rather than try to jump the gun and get like three or four eggs that might not, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with them. I'd rather, um, wait till the animals of a proper size and, and either get four really good, nice eggs or get a larger clutch or get, you know, something like that. Cool. And then incubating eggs. Do you have a preferred temp um, um, strategy? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much just um, you know keep the keep the humidity um, you know above like 30, 40 percent for uh, you know somewhere around there for for cow kings. And uh, I think the last couple of years I've been doing uh, eighty one degrees and just just going with that because I I don't use a real complex. Um, incubator right now i just have i just have two of the um the zoomed yeah like the you know just two of those box incubators and i just i just dial them in i think you can go they say you can go a degree or it's a you can go a degree or so higher than that but i just i keep it i think i, I go right around 81 just to stay safe and uh and i just watch the humidity and and uh it's been pretty pretty successful for me. I know you can you can bump it up a degree or two, and and uh, I know a friend of mine. You know, I know people that do that, and you and they'll they'll hatch out. You know, uh, a week or or a few days earlier. You know, you can do that. But uh, that's pretty much where where I've been dialing them in at the last few years. Cool. Yeah, that's one of my preferences. Is really incubate at lower temperatures because the babies come out much larger, and especially with king snakes, I've I've had good success over in in the past by doing that and actually getting some of the kings to take pinks right off the bat um using like the lunch bag trick of taking the pink and putting the snake in 
crumbling it down and stapling the bag um, because scenting uh, lizards with pinks can always be uh, troublesome too as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause then you, yeah, it's all sorts of reasons, you know, bringing mites into your snake room and <laughs> that's always, there's always, there's always something that comes, that comes with it, but yeah, I'm going to have to, in the future, I'm going to have to experiment more and talk to, to more people. I, you know, early on, it was when I first got into it, I just, I, I, um, you know, I would consult a few people that I, that I knew that uh, had, have done this for quite some time, like Gary Kiesler and, um, you know, we've just kind of, we've, we've had success with it so far. It's, it's, it's so far it's worked a, a big thing for me that took a couple tries to really learn and really, or get the concept up too was getting the, the, uh, the substrate, you know, getting the vermiculite or the perlite, um, the right, uh, getting the right amount of moisture in there, not getting too much in there. Um, and that's, that's something that is also obviously really, especially with like the, with the, the cow kings too, because the, uh, I mean, I don't know how I'm sure it's the same way with any type of, of reptile eggs, but these, these, you know, this particular species there, the, you know, these eggs are not being laid usually in, in yeah. very wet. It's just a little bit of moisture that they're using at the end of the season and laying them. And then they're, I think they're basically a lot of times they're, the soil is pretty dry. I'm sure where they're, they're being hatched out of. So I keep, I, I err on the side of drier now. You know, that's yeah. the thing you learned. It's because why, why, why be wetter? That's just, you're just taking a chance of, of, you know, having problems with the eggs, whereas you usually don't have a problem with dryer and, it, and you can always add a little bit of moisture with a dropper or something. If you, you know, that's just the thinking now, you know. All right. Well, I think we covered pretty much everything. This was great. This is our first locality episode. Right on. I really liked it. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, glad, I'm glad I'm glad I could uh, could come on and talk to you guys and help shed shed some more light on it. And uh, yeah, there, I think you guys should should do should get a, do more of this. Or you know, uh, Brian Hubs would be a good guy to. Yeah, we will to be pursuing Mister Hubs. <laughs> yeah, he's he, he, that that I guarantee would be a good episode. So, but I'm glad I could come on and and shed a little light on it. Yeah. So, once again, thanks for coming on. Uh, if people have questions for you or want to reach out, maybe you know, ask some questions about their kings. Maybe they have a king and they want to determine if you might be able to help them figure out what locale or if it has any of those influences like that chocolate back tail or something to that effect. How can people get a hold of you? Um, they can find me on uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, if you if you find me on you know uh, networking on Facebook. Um, my uh, my email um, address is dancruiser d a n d c r u i s e r at gmail. So they can contact me at dancruiser at gmail if they have any questions. Um, I'm going to be I'm trying to get sort of a brand with the Urban Kings up and running too. It's just something I else just if you guys didn't mind, I'm just gonna plug real quick. Go for it. But, uh, I got my uh, my logo. I've drawn up like a logo, and and we're just working on just kind of branding this. And I'm gonna I'm planning on getting uh, set up at the, at the reptile shows, the Pomona show, nice. possibly the Anaheim show, um, eventually having my own booth. And, and hopefully I'm, I'm, my, my goal is to have production years where I've got pretty much everything, um, bred and I can, I've got new porters from different localities available. I've got Whittiers from different localities available, hats, hyper males, and people can come to 
uh, said booth and they can talk with me. They can view all the babies and really see the differences and like what I'm talking about. And that's kind of my eventual goal is to get this, this brand called Urban Kings and uh, make it available to the public. Cause that's, that's just what I'm all about is just yeah. actually sharing what we've done and, and making it available and helping people with knowledge and to understand uh, these, these really cool King snakes. Badass. All righty. Well, it was a pleasure. We, my pleasure was all mine. <laughs> and with that, uh, thank you for listening. If you made it to this point, um, Matt and I would also like to thank the NPR network for hosting our show. We have done that in the past couple episodes. We certainly want to do that. And then finally, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but I want to send a shout out to Phil Wolf, uh, Nefris Initiative. He's part of Snakes and Stogies. He helped out my students and I when we were down in Florida. I got to meet him. It was fantastic. We had a good time in the field. Um, if you need to get a hold of me for anything, you should know where to find me by now. You can hit us up on our Instagram and Facebook page for Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. And then you can find me on Facebook, Zach Loafman. Um, and on uh, Instagram, Dr. Crawdad, because of all the crayfish stuff I do. Uh, Matt, where can our listeners find you? Yeah. You can email me at matt at serpermetra.com or Facebook at serpermetra and Instagram at serpermetra USA. All righty. So this was episode 12. Uh, we're trying to hold to our close to every two week schedule. Matt and I are finding time to, to do this in amongst our many, many travels. So uh, hope to have one uh, out in, a, in the next two weeks. No clue what we're doing, but we'll figure that out between now and then. So with that being said, thank you for listening. And we hope to have you back to listen to another episode of Blue Grid and Blue Broid Radio. Thank you all and have a good one.